welcome to Navarra Live. It's the last show of the week. It's a Friday night. That means I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Michael, as always, a great pleasure to be joined by. As I posted on Twitter and Instagram yesterday, I think the best up-and-coming journalist in the United Kingdom. What a privilege. You did post a very lovely tweet on Instagram of me yesterday. I had the pleasure, the privilege of being interviewed for 90 minutes yesterday by Aaron for this weekend's Downstream. It was an absolute pleasure. We'll probably talk about that later in the show. We've talked a lot on this show about the strong left-wing candidates Keir Starmer has blocked from becoming MPs. They include Maurice McLeod, the charity director we've spoken to on this show, Lauren Townsend, the council cabinet member backed by six trade unions. Also blocked was Lee Drennan, the chair of Northwest Labour. And now, just this week, Starmer himself has blocked former party leader Jeremy Corbyn. Each time strong left-wing candidates are blocked from shortlist, the party apparatus cites due diligence as their concern. This, we're told, is not a factional thing. But each time, it's clear that arguments from the party are complete nonsense. Due diligence concerns raised by the party included Townsend liking a tweet from Nicola Sturgeon saying she'd tested negative for COVID. How dare she like that tweet? Or McLeod liking a tweet from Caroline Lucas expressing concern about Brexit's impact on the NHS. Of course, these people cannot be MPs. Cannot be MPs. This is not factional. This is just a party, a well-oiled machine stopping people who would be liabilities. Obviously, this is nonsense. And there's another way to see that this is nonsense. The other way of judging how purely factional Starmer's behavior is, is to look at the right-wing candidates he did let through. Published on NavarraMedia.com today is this article exploring exactly that. And some of the scandal-hit candidates include the following. Darren Rodwell is leader of Barking and Dagenham Council and has been selected to replace Margaret Hodge. You can see him here speaking at a Black History event. And I'm now going to introduce you to our wonderful leader of the council, Councillor Darren Rodwell. Oh, might as well this as well, Linda. There you go. We know what this is all about now, don't we? So, you might have known that I've got the uh, worst hand possible for a black man. But, I have the passion of the rhythm of the African and Caribbean. I used to do swing dance because I used to love jigging about. That seems a lot more embarrassing than liking a tweet by the Green Party. Also included is Frank McAviti, a former Labour MSP. He passed due diligence tests despite having been caught on a live microphone saying this about a girl attending a Hollywood committee. There's a very attractive girl in the second row, dark and dusky. We'll maybe put a wee word out for her. She's very attractive looking, nice, very slim, very slim. The heat's getting to me. She looks kinda, she's got that Filipino look, you know, the kind you'd see in a Gorgon painting. There's a wee bit of culture. Now, according to the Scotsman, the girl Makaviti was talking about was doing work experience with a green MSP. A source told the paper she was 15 or 16. Despite this all being in the public domain, Makaviti, unlike McLeod, Townsend, Drennan or Corbyn, was allowed onto a final shortlist. It was only after a very public campaign that party bosses changed their minds. That article 
on NavarraMedia.com that we mentioned earlier has more candidates um, who got through vetting. Aaron, we talked about the fixes of the people who've been blocked. We've talked less about the people who managed to get through. Luckily, the, the second person we mentioned didn't make it to be an MP, but he did make it to the shortlist. So he, he got through all of those hoops that Corbyn, that Drennan, that Townsend, that McLeod didn't get through. Well, of course, before Jeremy Corbyn, the caliber of Labour MPs and, and parliamentary candidates, Michael, was just sky high. None of them have been to prison because of the expenses scandal. None of them have been ejected from politics because of claims of sexual harassment. And none of them got involved in punch-ups in the Strangers Bar in the House of Commons. All of these kinds of things only begin with Jeremy Corbyn and, of course, a lack of proper scrutiny and vetting of candidates. And now, of course, under Keir Starmer, we're returning to the good old days where that just doesn't happen. Of course, complete nonsense, Michael. There is, in the Labour Party, a cancer of factionism. It's been driven by the right for decades. Jeremy Corbyn was infinitely better than them in terms of what kinds of people were being selected for seats. Now, some people say, well, that's just simply not true. And they'll throw forward some reasonable examples where actually, no, there were candidates imposed by the NEC. That was generally in 2017, where, of course, there was a snap election. Nobody knew that was coming, with the exception of Theresa May and her inner coterie. And with by-elections, Michael, with the exception of a single candidate, every single Labour candidate between 2015 and 2019 in by-elections, every single candidate, bar one, was effectively somebody who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn. So this idea that he was imposing his candidates and that they were terrible and they didn't meet you know, the requirements expected of somebody who's going to be serving a public office, complete nonsense. Complete nonsense. It should be said, however, that you know, there were multiple people who entered Parliament as Labour MPs in 2017, 2019, Gerard Amara, Fiona Onasanya, Claudia Webb, who have been found guilty of unlawful or criminal activity. That's not acceptable. However, that's now being used as a cover, as a ruse by the Labour right to really um, undertake undemocratic uh, moves. And of course, it's duplicitous and hypocritical precisely because Labour MPs have done exactly the same in the past. Michael, in this country, politicians genuinely have a low reputation amongst the electorate. And I know it's very fashionable for the permanent political class and for the media in London to say, well, that's because the electorate's stupid. No, it's because the electorate's got eyes and ears. Look at the expenses scandal in 2009 and some of the things people were getting embroiled in. Douglas Alexander was getting the taxpayer to do up his second home, where, by the way, he had a tenant paying rent. So not only is this Labour Labour MP, a landlord, you, that's really quite questionable, right? Not only is this Labour MP, a landlord, the taxpayer is funding the redecoration of the place he's making money on. Remarkable. And yet he's now going to be a candidate for the forthcoming general election he was recently selected. So look, vetting, I don't take it very seriously. The least professional people in this country, Michael, the least professional industry is Westminster politics. It's because it's a duopoly. There is no competition. That's my inner Adam Smith, inner capitalist coming out, Michael. They're both very, very dirty, nepotistic, snake-like organizations where the most talented people don't rise to the top, but rather the people most willing to kiss butts get to the highest offices. Not good. Not good for this country. Not good for solving the problems that we really have to address in the next several decades. Whereas in the Corbyn years, the media were obsessed with anyone getting blocked from becoming an MP, obsessed with anyone potentially getting deselected. Remember, no one was deselected under the years that Corbyn was in power. Keir Starmer has been leader of the Labour Party for two years now, coming on free. 
And we already have, actually, it's been over three now, hasn't it? We already have uh, an MP who's been deselected, a left winger, right? So that's the kind of thing that the media would have gone wild over when Corbyn was in power. For Starmer, they don't care. And they're also not going to bother scrutinizing his right wing candidates because that's not what they do. On that question of Labour and the media, we are going to be returning to in a moment. First of all, though, over at shop.navaramedia.com, our hate landlords caps have been restocked and are now shipping. The link for our store is in the description below. And we've got something at the end of the show related um, to landlords. So stay tuned for that. It goes without saying that Keir Starmer's Labour gets an easier ride in the media than Corbyn ever did. That's in large part because Starmer, unlike Corbyn, shares the values and interests of the wealthy media class concentrated in central London. But the alliance between centrist Labour and the sensible broadcast press has, of late, started to get even cruder. First up, this was an interview on Good Morning Britain this Wednesday. What do you think it is around the people who supported Jeremy Corbyn, Margaret, which still means, even today, they can't accept that there was a problem of anti-Semitism in Labour during those years? And is there any prospect that Sir Keir Starmer could bring Jeremy Corbyn back into uh, to full membership of the Labour Party? I can't think of any circumstances at all in which Jeremy Corbyn could stand um, as a Labour candidate at the next election. So that was the anti-Corbyn and pro-Starmer MP Margaret Hodge being interviewed by the anti-Corbyn and pro-Starmer Ed Balls. Balls is, of course, also husband to the current Shadow Home Secretary. How delightfully cosy. Now, fast forward to Thursday, and we have an interview with Mike Katz. He's chair of the anti-Corbyn and pro-Starmer Jewish Labour movement. And take a look at who interviewed him on LBC. How much credit should go to Keir Starmer, who said that he would grip this right from the moment he took over? And what do you think about his decision yesterday to say, look, Jeremy Corbyn uh, will not be returning to the Labour fold? Well, <clears throat> firstly, I think it's, you know, it's... Uh, a lot of the mechanical things that we as the JLM were involved in helping the party implement, that wasn't, no, that that was rightly down to down to the David Evans Labour Party General Secretary, the National Executive Committee, the, the, mechanic, the mechanics of the party. But it never would have happened without Keir's leadership, as I say, from the get-go. And I want to be very, very clear about that. What a tough interview. Literally, Keir Starmer's Foreign Secretary, or Shadow Foreign Secretary, sorry, asking a pro-Keir Starmer guest, just how great is Keir Starmer? Just how great is, how terrible was Jeremy Corbyn? How great is Keir Starmer? And then the guest says, oh, yes, Jeremy Corbyn was terrible. Keir Starmer is great. Very, very engaging radio, of course, not, not biased at all. The story also goes full circle because on Friday morning, David Lammy had switched from host to guest, being interviewed by, you guessed it, former stalwart of Labour centrism and husband of the Shadow Home Secretary, Ed Balls. Jeremy Corbyn, you've, um, uh, I know, apologised for for nominating him in 2015. He's now not going to be a Labour candidate at the next general election. But don't you have some sympathy for all those Labour Party members in Islington who say he's been our MP for 40 years, Keir Starmer's now going to stop us choosing him again to be our MP. They say this is undemocratic. Don't you have a bit of sympathy for them? You know, I spoke to Mike Katz, the chair of the Jewish Labour movement yesterday. And uh, reflecting on the last few years and how difficult it's been to be a Jewish member of the Labour Party and the huge progress that's now been made by Keir Starmer. Credit to him right from the beginning saying that we were going to grip and deal with this. 
Of course, David Lammy isn't the only new Labour character who gets to play both host and guest. Because on Sunday, Ed Balls started the week by being interviewed about exactly the same story. Who would ever have thought, though, that in, as, as in the past couple of years, that anti-Semitism would become a real issue in the Labour Party? Well, of course, there was always strains of anti-Semitism in, um, in the left going back 100 years uh, or more for the, the, the reasons David said about sort of, you know, um, the capitalist forces controlling the global economy. It's famously um, called the socialism of fools. I'm never entirely sure who created that, George Bernard Shaw or whatever, but the anti-Semitism yeah. is the socialism of fools yeah. because but, of the association of Jews with money and capitalism. And, but and the mainstream Labour Party in modern times didn't have anti-Semitic problems. The, the mainstream Labour Party and its membership changed very substantially over those years since 2015. The Labour Party is still in special measures, waiting for the ECHR to um, finally conclude that Labour's done enough to put that stain to one side. That's not happened yet. Keir Starmer, I think, has been working really hard to do that. And Jeremy Corbyn, who couldn't recognise the findings of that report, is no longer a member of the Labour Party. And I think Keir Starmer will keep it that way because it's important that he shows Labour is changing. But it was a dark, terrible period in Labour's history. So that guy who was trashing Jeremy Corbyn on the Sunday then spent the whole week interviewing Labour politicians about Jeremy Corbyn. Aaron, I've got a question for you. Is there a single job which is easier in Britain right now than going on the broadcast media and saying how great Keir Starmer is and how terrible Jeremy Corbyn was and continues to be? No. No, it's a very easy job, Michael, because some of the least talented people in the country in politics and media do it seemingly every day. You could add more names to this, you know. Either Ed Balls is presenting uh, Good Morning Britain, Michael, or Alastair Campbell is, right? Jackie Smith, the former Labour Home Secretary, she often appears on LBC too, or as a pundit. This is absolutely extraordinary. We're looking at the lowest ebb, the rock bottom of the British media in real time, in real time. And I have to say, Michael, this is something I've been thinking about for a while. You have the media, you've got broadcast, and then you've got obviously print. Both are online, but that's the historic binary. Broadcast comprises radio, TV, print is obviously the, the newspapers, principally the daily print newspapers. Now, in this country, I believe that the print papers, uh, the print media are clearly to the right. They're clearly conservative. I think that's indisputable, particularly the tabloids, but you know, you had the Telegraph and the, the Times too. And then I think you've got broadcast media, which is actually effectively new labor. They're all in London. They're all members of the permanent media political class. They all know one another. Many of them went to university with one another. And it's a club. And that's really new labor. And what's really interesting, Michael, is that that kind of that compromise, which is quite homeostatic, which is to say that it's quite balanced. One balances the other out under normal conditions. That whole sort of settlement collapsed with Corbynism because, of course, you had somebody who wasn't from either camp. So when you have a new labor government or a new labor politician doing well, they're attacked by the right wing press. And when you have the conservatives, they're often undermined by broadcast, far more than the print, right? So it's a, it's a useful settlement in a two-party system. Of course, that's not very good because sometimes the two parties aren't presenting the right ideas. Sometimes they both agree on something like austerity, in which case you get buy-in on austerity from both parties and all the media, okay? And actually, austerity was the wrong idea. And on a bunch of policy issues, particularly public services, taxing the rich, reinvigorating high streets, Jeremy Corbyn had the right idea. But because he wasn't New Labour or Tory, he got attacks from both sides. So I think inherently we're already seeing, you know, before we saw these 
this clown show. I mean, Michael, that set of clips was remarkable. It's jaw-dropping. I would defy any other country in, in Western Europe, most certainly, to produce a series of clips like that. It is absolutely extraordinary. It's a circus, or is it a merry-go-round? Or is it even worth, worse, both? I, I would submit it is absolutely remarkable. And I wonder how much further it will go. And finally, to conclude, these people seem to have no capacity for self-reflection. David Lammy is saying, oh, I was talking to Mike Katz uh, yesterday. Yeah, you were talking to him as an LBC host. <laughs> you weren't having a private meeting at Westminster in one of your offices. To go, I'm really hearing your concerns and your considerations. You, you were doing it as a media pundit. Breakdown, Michael. Absolute breakdown. And look, people, again, I've talked about people not trusting politicians. People don't trust journalists. And again, if you're, if you're in London, if you're in the club, if you're one of the big house London pundits with your nice big house in zone two, right? And you have your lovely local gastro pub where you can go for lunch, have a shot of Calvados, have a late lunch, and then file something for the Guardian or the Times. Well, of course, the, you know, the, the stupid plebs in the rest of the country, they're completely wrong. You know, the media does a fine job. Finest in the world. No, actually, it turns out the people who criticize the journalists and the media are just the same as the ones who criticize the politicians. Their analysis is broadly correct. You're terrible. You're insular, incurious, mediocre, and nepotistic. Especially that last clip where you just got Ed Balls, George Osborne, David Baddiel, and Andrew Neil talking about how terrible Jeremy Corbyn is. I mean, it might as well be a fly on the wall documentary in a you know a West London dinner party. Like there was, it was so cozy. The consensus was so solid and unspoken, and it was so lazy. All of the analysis, Times Radio. I mean, it's supposed to be a bit more objective, but this was Channel Four, right? You know, it, it's not a YouTube show. It's Channel Four. It's one of the big broadcast channels supposed to be regulated by Ofcom. And you just got all of these people who fundamentally agree from a very fundamentally similar class chatting about something which is actually very contentious, <laughs> you know, which a huge swathe of the population really fundamentally disagrees with them. And ugh, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, Aaron. What would have been the equivalent in the Corbyn years? I suppose uh, David Lammy interviewing Mike Katz might be, you know, if they gave Diane Abbott an LBC show and she was interviewing John Landsman. And that was considered sort of yeah. like normal, objective journalism. Yeah. If, if, well, we can't even say what would have happened if that, because it wouldn't have happened, right? Can you imagine? I mean, there'd be, you know, there would be the pylon from the Guardian, and you know, all the liberals and all, you know, there would be pylon. You know, there'd be hundreds of complaints to uh, Ofcom. <laughs> LBC is the new Russia today. Diane, you know, Diane Abbott hosts a show there. It would be like Diane Abbott asking me questions about media reform. We've got Aaron Bastani here from Navarra Media. He's here to talk about why we need X number of media reforms. And why we should start funding organizations in digital media whose name starts with an N. <laughs> what, are your what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that, Aaron? Uh, Diane, I think it's a fantastic idea. I hope a, a, a Corbyn government instigates it immediately. Very much needed. Thanks for your time, Aaron. Really interesting insights. That's basically what they're doing. Mike Katz being interviewed by bloody David Lammy. And then the following day, Diane Abbott's on Good Morning Britain being interviewed by John Rees from Stop the War Coalition about media reform. She says, oh, actually, I was talking to Aaron Bastani yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and he was saying that we should do media reform and fund all these organizations that begin with the letter N. And John Rees is there going like, oh, that's very interesting, actually. That, that would li that's literally the analogy. And you think, how crazy would that be? This is that, right? That's basically what this is. That's the British media. It's so cozy, Michael. It's so cozy. And they think if you point this out and you say, hmm, perhaps this is slightly unprofessional, they think you're an idiot. They don't just think you're wrong. They think you're an idiot. They think, oh, you know, low education, low status opinion. No, no. High status opinion is they're all so smart in London inside the M25 with their big house in Islington. 
all had the same opinion. And if you disagree, you must be stupid. But that's where we are. Let's go to our next story. In the past two weeks, US-China relations have been shaken by the appearance of a spy balloon over America. That balloon, with a payload the size of free school buses, was ultimately shot down by the US Air Force. But there are now other mysterious balloons being shot down by American fighter jets, and amateur balloonists are feared to be among those caught in the crossfire. This is a headline from Aviation Weekly. Hobby Club's missing balloon feared shot down by the US Air Force. And the article included this quote from the founder of Scientific Balloon Solutions, who says, I tried contacting our military and the FBI and just got the runaround to try to enlighten them on what a lot of these probably are. And they're going to look not too intelligent to be shooting them down. So you've got multi-million pound fighter jets shooting down balloons owned by amateur balloon societies. We haven't covered the balloon wars yet on Navarra, so let's go through a quick rundown of how we got here. The original spy balloon, of course, was first sighted over the US just over two weeks ago. This is how the BBC reported that news at the time. I have no idea what this thing is. A strange object in the sky, filmed by a member of the public in rural Montana. And for those of you who think uh, this might just be the moon, it is not the moon. The moon is off to my right. I can see it. Uh, this is it's not the moon, nor a UFO, but U.S. officials claim a Chinese spy balloon. It seems so brazen and just so insane to me. It was just like, this thing is so visible. And it's now sparked a major diplomatic row. The Chinese foreign ministry today first called for calm, but later apologized, saying a scientific balloon mainly used for weather research had gone off course. But within hours, the U.S. military responded by saying they did not believe Beijing. The fact is, uh, we know that it's a surveillance balloon, uh, and I'm not going to be able to be more specific than that. Uh, we do know that the balloon has violated U.S. airspace and international law, uh, which is unacceptable. So where did the balloon come from? A U.S. meteorologist has tracked the route it may have taken using a model normally used to look at the spread of pollutants. The BBC's data analysts and weather teams say this model takes account of things like wind patterns and shows a trajectory from China across the Pacific, crossing Alaska, then Canada, before entering the US. It was then spotted, supposedly first by civilians on a plane over rural Montana. Here, US officials claim the balloon lingered. Why? Well, one possible reason we can see from this satellite imagery is Malmstrom Air Force Base nearby, an important base that houses intercontinental missiles. The US Air Force scrambled two fighter jets from Nevada's Nellis Air Force Base, but the decision was taken not to shoot the balloon down because of the risk of debris causing harm below. The balloon was able to fly across the US until it met the coast where it was shot down by a fighter jet. This is amateur footage of that moment. The balloon is the white dot you can see. Coming from the left of the screen, you can see the vapor trail of a plane and the vapor trail of a missile, which pops the balloon. You can hear the glee from the crowd who are watching. They got the balloon and that was it. I see shiny stuff. What do they say in Top Gun? Splashboard. <laughs> what you see in Top Gun. I'm really enjoying that. 
what happened next then? Well, even with the balloon downed, Joe Biden still faced pressure from the Republicans. This was Ted Cruz's take. I want to start by doing something that I don't do very often, uh, which is commending Joe Biden for actually having the guts to shoot this down. That was the right thing to do. That is absolutely what the president should have done. Unfortunately, he didn't do that until a week after it entered U.S. airspace. He allowed a full week for the Chinese to conduct spying operations over the United States, over sensitive military installations, exposing not just photographs, but the potential of intercepted communications. And and more broadly, I I think this entire episode uh, telegraphed weakness to Xi and the Chinese government. Perhaps in response to that pressure, the Biden government went into overdrive, going on to shoot three more balloons out of the US skies. That led to breathless coverage from TV networks, including this from News Nation. A new high-flying object shot down, this time over Lake Huron. And this is the fourth object that was taken down in more than a week. NORAD releasing a statement saying President Biden ordered the takedown. This time, the military used an F-16 jet to shoot down the unidentified object that was flying low at 20,000 feet. The military has been on high alert since last week's Chinese spy balloon was destroyed. Our team is tracking tonight's breaking news, and we do start with correspondent Joe Khalil live for us in Washington, D.C. Joe, what are we learning about this newest incident? Yeah, here we go again. So that all sounded pretty dramatic, a bit like something from Top Gun. But on Thursday this week, we got an important clarification from Joe Biden. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were, but nothing, nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other, any other country. So we might be looking at up to three amateur ballooning clubs being disappointed about lost hardware. Let's get back to the original spy balloon that sparked this row, though. What do we know about that balloon and how it ended up flying over us? Well, it seems like the whole thing might have been an accident all along. The Washington Post reported this on Wednesday. By the time a Chinese spy balloon crossed into American airspace late last month, U.S. military and intelligence agencies had been tracking it for nearly a week, watching as it lifted off from its home base on Hainan Island near China's south coast. U.S. monitors watched as the balloon settled into a flight path that would appear to have taken it over the U.S. territory of Guam. But somewhere along that easterly route, the craft took an unexpected northern turn, according to several U.S. officials who said that analysts are now examining the possibility that China didn't intend to penetrate the American heartland with its airborne surveillance device. The balloon floated over Alaska's Aleutian Islands, thousands of miles away from Guam, then drifted over Canada, where it encountered strong winds that appeared to have pushed the balloon south into the continental United States, the officials said, speaking on the condition of anonymity to describe sensitive intelligence. This part is pretty interesting. Intelligence analysts, the Washington Post say, are unsure whether the apparent deviation was intentional or accidental, but are confident it was intended for surveillance, most likely over U.S. military installations in the Pacific. Its crossing into U.S. airspace was a violation of sovereignty, and its hovering over sensitive nuclear sites in Montana was no accident, officials said, raising the possibility that even if the balloon were inadvertently blown over the U.S. mainland, Beijing apparently decided to seize the opportunity to try to gather intelligence. So the Chinese were originally saying this was an accident. It just sort of, the wind took it over there. The Washington Post now seem to be agreeing with that. Obviously, the Chinese also said it wasn't a surveillance balloon. The consensus among the US establishment is that it was, but the Washington Post appear here 
based on sources from the intelligence community to be suggesting maybe it was just blown off course. They're now suggesting that opportunistically, the Chinese might have then decided to let it hover over some intercontinental ballistic missiles in Montana. The tragic victims, of course, are the balloons of amateur ballooning associations. Um, Aaron, what do you make of this story? It's been rolling for a little while now. What's interesting, Michael, is that this isn't actually that new. Um, We've had scares around mystery balloons and mystery airships in the past. You had at the end of the 19th century, strangely in the United States, of course, you have um, issues around UFOs, which is what these were, right? Unidentified flying objects. You also had that remarkable moment where the man who was responsible for US airspace said to the media, well, we can't discount the possibility of this being, you know, uh, in- engagement with an inter- uh, extraterrestrial civilization. That was like the, the words of a reporter at a press conference. They said, can we discount that pos- possibility? And he said, well, no. And that got them all going crazy. You know, so this might seem really new, but it's not. You have this, like I said, at the end of the 19th century in the United States, something similar in the UK too. And of course, there was some uh, sense behind that because, of course, with the First World War, you get Zeppelin raids from Germany onto the UK mainland. So in these moments of geopolitical fervor and a sense of heightened risk, people do start to look at things like this as a threat. And it does seem to appear to be the case that these, these weren't a threat, but it does get to the heart of something deeper here, more profound about, about the human psyche and the ability as well of, of um, country security elites to instrumentalize those those threats, that that sense of vulnerability to, to do quite to do quite extraordinary things, which is of course what happens with US foreign policy in the early 21st century. So yes, the fact that this has ended so quickly and it's kind of funny and, and, and stupid is probably a good thing. I feel like if this story was reported, say, in the early 21st century under George W. Bush, pre-social media, I feel like it would have been much more sinister and the actual facts would have come to light much later. So it's good we can talk about these things with a smile on our face. Yeah, I suppose I wanted to talk to you about how worrying this should be. And because obviously this is bringing up sort of like the inevitability of great power conflict. One of the things that seems to be constraining Biden somewhat is, you know, you've got this domestic political competition whereby any opportunity to bash China and call the American government weak is pounced upon by the Republicans. And that means that, you know, Joe Biden as president, you know, it doesn't seem particularly hawkish, you know, re-China when you sort of listen to what their policy advisors are saying, but it seems to be getting pushed into it. The policy which Trump brought in has not been changed. Is, is great power conflict among rising powers inevitable? And I ask you this because I've heard you on a previous show recommend that book by Paul Kennedy, which is about the rise and fall of great mm. powers. I bought it on your recommendation. Mm. I never actually got around to reading it. So I want to know your mm. take on, on the inevitability of great power conflict. How worried should we be about it? Well, the modern state system is only, what, 400 years old? And in the history of the modern state system, you know, post, you know, 1640s really is the argument. I mean, you can move the dates around if you like. But within that context, yes, you know, fights between the great powers for hegemony within a particular region or global hegemony, that has been the norm. Now, the counter argument is, and this is the one that Beijing makes, is that, well, actually, you're looking at a curiously Western phenomenon. China has absolutely no interests in US airspace or global hegemony. It just cares about its backyard, South China Sea, Taiwan, obviously, which is very, I'm not suggesting that any of this isn't controversial. Some of it is, Taiwan, for instance. But they would say, look, we're not really interested in Europe or North America in the same way that the Europeans and the Americans were interested in the Pacific and Asia in the last 50, 100, 150 years 
because that's a curiously and uniquely Western phenomenon. So you've got two arguments here. The West, the Brits, the Europeans, the Americans would say this is the default. This is just what happens between great powers and rising powers in India, China. You also get this with a lot of um, politicians and policymakers in places like Singapore, because of course Lee Kuan Yew and what they did in Singapore was a real avatar for a different kind of modernizing project even though Singapore is quite small, they would say, well, actually, we want to pursue a very different path, which is about trade, not war, which is about domestic development, not imperium and conquering places overseas. So those are the two perspectives. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. So we should be a little bit scared. And I suppose we should be resisting the, the calls from the right to be as tough as possible. I was also watching sort of the beginning of a documentary on Sky Australia, which is worse than our Sky News. It's very much sort of more editorially controlled by, by Murdoch. And they've been doing these documentaries about the oncoming war with China, with all the sort of scary music. And you've got the Chinese military marching and the whole thing, I think, is supposed to be scaring audiences into believing that there's about to be a world war with China, which... I mean, I've got no idea about the inevitability of great power conflict in a way, but if anyone thinks that a, a war with China wouldn't be absolutely disastrous and catastrophic for everyone involved, you know, this is not going to be a chance for brave politicians to seem like Churchill and flex their muscles. No, this is going to be the end of everything. So a lot rests on there not being a war with China, okay? So I think people sort of throw these comments around a little bit too easily. Let's go to our next story. On Question Time this week, the topic of the Knowlesley riots came up and Ian Hislop was there to lay into the government. The gentleman said, is, is Knowlesley safe? And that was the original question, is that the government puts asylum seekers in places um, which are already deprived quite often because it's easier and cheaper. It outsources them to companies who run them very badly for profit. There's no warning a lot of the time. The hotels just spring up. The reason people are in hotels and hotels for so long is because the backlog is so enormous. And people are there for, you know, months and years. You say you'd like them not to be. Well, that they are. That is why they're there. And to blame the people in the hotels and the hostels for being there when the system has completely failed seems to be encouraging people to go around there with hammers and smash up police cars and say, it's your fault you're here. It seems to be encouraging the sort of reaction that social media and the various sort of lunatics um, uh, who follow that stuff um, take as read. And I think all of those factors mean you've just got to do better. Okay. Well, can I say to answer that? Very briefly, I, I could Robert. not have been clearer in answering the original question that there is no excuse okay. for mm. violence and the kind of scenes we saw in Nosley. But if you believe in borders, then you have to say that if people come here illegally in small boats, that is criminality. They might also be vulnerable people, mm. but it is criminality and we have to stop it. So a good point by Ian Hislop. I think that answer by Robert Jenrick was just absolutely disgraceful because it was so misleading. I suppose the thing that annoys me on this show a lot, because we, you know, we talk about lots of sort of terrible news and stuff, and it's all affecting. But I suppose the thing that really riles me up is when you have the combination of a policy which is really, really damaging, and then a politician who just stands up and tells complete untruths. Now, the idea that if you believe in borders, you have to be deporting people if they arrive in your country, you know, without permission is nonsense. You know, all countries in the world have borders, right? No, there is no country in the world that currently has complete open borders where anyone can go in and out. But asylum policy, you know, as included in the Refugee Convention, says that if someone arrives who has a right to asylum, you have to consider that claim. Now, 
it's accepted that many people are going to arrive in a country who haven't been given prior permission to be there. The nature of asylum is you tend to have to go to a country to cross its border to then apply for asylum. So the idea that it's either deportation of anyone who arrives here without prior permission or no borders is complete nonsense. He also said a bit of a tautology, which I thought was very dishonest. He says, you have to admit that people who arrive here illegally are engaging in criminality. Well, yes, if, if they are arriving here illegally, they are engaging in criminality, but are, are they really arriving here illegally, right? That's the point. The, the Tories are trying to argue that they are, but international law suggests that arriving in a country is never illegal, right? Y you have the right to arrive in a country and claim asylum. That's part of the international understanding of how the asylum process works. If you've been denied asylum and you stay, you know, I don't necessarily think that's immoral, but you can say that that is illegal to, to be denied asylum and then stay. But to arrive and claim asylum, that's not illegal. So you can say, yes, if they arrive here illegally, it's criminality, but they haven't arrived here illegally. So it's, it, it's a lie and then a tautology which is misleading and dishonest. Aaron, what did you make of that exchange? Well, Michael Walker, your explanation just then is why, you know, I said at the top of the show, you're such a great journalist. You, you, you've clarified the problem here, which is that the Tories are using rhetoric. It's one thing to use political rhetoric when you're trying to raise emotions uh, around a particular policy issue. The Tories do it on immigration. They do it around the small boats because their base loves it. It's another thing to actually say something is illegal when it isn't. And at the same time, there has clearly been a real soft, not defense, because that's not accurate. Look, Michael, in, in, in Nowsley, what happened was you had 15 people arrested and a police van was set on fire. Now, if that was a bunch of anti-fascists, do you not think that would have had a condemnation by Rishi Sunak on Twitter? He hasn't mentioned it. So, you know, it does tell you something about the whole discourse of law and order, where that's not such a big deal, and people doing something which is perfectly legal, well, actually, this is illegal. It's not illegal, like you say. When, and also, when does it become illegal? Is it illegal when they, because they're legally in France, they leave France. Is it illegal when they go on the water? Is it illegal when they land in the UK? Like, this is nonsensical. And we need more journalists like you in the mainstream to call it out, Michael, because it's ridiculous. Ian Hislop, good on him. You know, Private Eye is quite a unique publication in that respect. It's not the kind of argument you find very often uh, made elsewhere in the print media. And it's certainly not the kind of work you find elsewhere in the media in terms of how they uncover duplicity and hypocrisy and outright lies and corruption. We need more Ian Hislops in the media. Yeah, so my, he, he does seem someone who's, who's not particularly ideologically motivated, but does just want to call bullshit. And he is quite good at calling bullshit. So I do respect him for that. And I think that's what happened in that exchange as well. The key question in that debate probably wasn't put by Fiona Bruce or someone else on the panel. It was put by um, an audience member. Let's take a look. Talked on and on about safe and legal routes, but they're closed to people from so many areas. Um, I actually live a mile and a half from a hotel which has got almost 200 asylum seekers. A number of them come from Tigray in northern Ethiopia. There's been a war there the past couple of years with over 600,000 deaths. There's been war crimes. It's potentially a genocide, but certainly there's been ethnic cleansing. How could someone from Tigray? come to the UK through a safe and legal route. Right now, there's nothing for them. It was a very good question. Unfortunately, it came bunched in with a number of other audience questions. So if you watch Question Time recently, Fiona Bruce often goes around the audience and says, who's got questions? They take about five. That one wasn't specifically put to any politicians, so no one had to answer it. The answer would, of course, be there is no way for them to come here at all. So the, the, the analysis that the, the Tories always make, we're not against 
people seeking asylum. We're just against people doing it illegally. Well, you can't do it legally. You can't do it illegally because it's not illegal to come here, but you can't do it by the mechanism they have proposed. So essentially, if you want asylum in Britain, you can't have it. It's, it, it, it is just fundamentally incredibly humane. It's ripping up the refugee convention. Aaron, do you think this is, I mean, what do you think is going to happen here? It's, it's a difficult one because they obviously think they're onto a winner. They think this argument, well, mm. people think people have to play by the rules. It's not obvious that if you arrive by boat to Britain, you haven't broken the law, right? It's not obvious to people that that's how the Refugee Convention works. Lots of people think, no, they should queue like everyone else and it, it, without realizing that there isn't another way of, of, of queuing. Are the Tories going to get their way? Are they, do they think they're going to get stopped in the courts and this is just trying to up the issue of migration before the next general election? Will Labour sort of, when, if they get into power, sort of just say this is all ridiculous? Of course, we're not going to deport people if they've arrived by an irregular route without having first checked their claims for asylum. Where's this going? Well, I think, first of all, Michael, it's important to say that this is, again, politics by press release, government by press release. The Tories are benefiting from this chaotic, dysfunctional system. They benefit electorally from mismanaging asylum policy in this country. And the fact that we're not processing people quickly enough, we're having to put large numbers of people into hotels in all sorts of places around the country and not coordinating it in a better way. Clearly, it's not an ideal situation, Michael, when you have in a, in a community all of a sudden hundreds of people there. Some of them will uh, be from incredibly traumatic, experience incredibly traumatic things, come from very different social contexts. They won't be accustomed to seeing people operate like we do in this country. It's not to defend what they may or may not do, but that's just a fact. So clearly, we don't have an ideal asylum policy in this country. I would like us to provide asylum to, to more people. If you look at the numbers we give asylum to successfully compared to somewhere like Sweden or Germany, it's very low. The idea we're letting everyone in is simply untrue. But I think this mismanagement dysfunction is actually about the Tories keeping this issue of immigration high up in the agenda, high issue salience, and getting 30, 35% of the electorate angry enough to come out and vote for them in the next general election. They don't want a system where people are processed quickly, where people are, you know, uh, you know, discreetly um, processed in such a way that you don't have potential, you know, community tensions flare up. So, for instance, what happens in Knowsley is the, the claim is a man was making um, approaches to a, a girl who was a minor. Clearly, that's not acceptable. The Tories want this to happen, in my opinion, because it benefits them politically. This benefits them politically, right? If that stuff doesn't happen, and we, if we have a, a competently executed asylum system, this issue suddenly goes down in terms of voter salience. And the number one get-out-of-jail card in the coming general election, whether it's 2024, 2025, is immigration small boats. They can't talk about the economy. Look, the new uh, deputy chair of the party, Lee, Ash, uh, Lee Ashfield, I always get his name wrong, you know, he was talking about how they're going to have to fight the next general election on, he called it explicitly, culture war issues. LGBT rights, immigration, small boats. And that's a tacit admission that they have absolutely bugger all to offer the electorate on the economy and public services. So I think something quite sinister is going on here, Michael, where mismanagement of asylum is actually part of a re-election strategy. That's what I find most scary about this. It's Lee Anderson, who's MP for Ashfield. And by the way, I can see how that confusion happens. But this is why I think, you, you know, Suella Braverman's tweet was not subtle, right? So I, I think this in a way, it's a smart, it, it, it's, it's, it's subtle to sort of create mismanagement on purpose to then reap the benefits of that chaos, 
right? It it took me a while to kind of clock that I think that's what's going on, right? I, I don't think it is necessarily obvious to to everyone who's who's listening to the Tories here. And so in that way, it's you know it's it's quite devious, you know, it's 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 almost clever electoral politics, you know, almost subtle. It's disgusting. But Suella Braverman's tweet is just like, we're not even trying to hide this. You know, her tweet, the one I'm talking about is when she said, okay, yes, violence is bad. Even if essentially she says, she's sort of, whatever was done by the asylum seekers, this riot is not justified. Like that is, it's not even a dog whistle. It's just actively saying bad people on both sides. It's, it's Trumpy and it's disgusting. And I'm very worried about where British politics is going to go in the next year or so. And let's go to our final story. We just showed you Robert Jenrick, one arsehole. We're going to show you probably even a bigger one now. More teenage boys have heard of Andrew Tate than Rishi Sunak. That's just one stat from a poll by Hope Not Hate that makes for pretty scary reading. It was written up by The Independent. They say this, Research found that 8 in 10 boys aged between 16 and 17 had either read, listened to, or watched content from the misogynistic success coach. Around 6 in 10 boys had heard of the Prime Minister and roughly 4 in 10 knew who London Mayor Sadiq Khan was. Just slightly more than around a third of boys had heard of the Labour leader Keir Starmer. They go on to report this. Researchers who polled over 1,200 people in the UK aged between 16 to 24 discovered that 45% of men have a positive view of Mr Tate, while only 26% held a negative opinion of the influencer. When probed about why they like Mr. Tate, most said they thought Mr. Tate wants men to be real men or that he gives good advice. However, just 1% of women aged 16 to 17 had a positive opinion of Mr. Tate, while 82% viewed him negatively. Now, that disparity is so, so depressing. These are people who go to school together. These are people who should be friends, should be hanging out. I mean, probably many of them are friends and, and hanging out. But you've got this figure who is splitting opinion so starkly. So... A plurality of boys, 45%, saying this guy is someone to be looked, un- looked up to. Only 1% of girls agree. Now, obviously, that's also, you know, looks a bit like a statistical error. You've got 82% who disagree. So that is, I just find it so depressing that there is this character, this influencer, this TikToker who is just putting this huge wedge in between teenage boys and teenage girls. I think it's, it's horrific evil. I don't use that word very much on this show, but I do kind of think it's kind of evil dividing people like that. Very depressing. Also, it's not inexplicable. Let's look at an interview with Tate on the BFFs podcast last summer. You say a lot of stuff about women like that they're your property. That's not what I said. I was talking about an OnlyFans company when that was question was asked. But I said that if a woman is going out with a man, she belongs to that man. That's his woman. So she wants to do OnlyFans. She owes him some money because she's his. Well, that's crazy. That one's crazy. If you, so you think that a man going out with a girl, that that's just your property? That one was nuts. I'm, I'm nuts now. Good. If a guy and a girl is dating and a girl does OnlyFans, she owes him a cut? She is his girl. But what does that have to do with anything? Because she's his. So that is you saying that women are y- your property. It's not about being property. It's about the fact that she belongs to him and the intimate parts of her body belong to him because they're in a relationship. And if she wants to sell those, he has a stake in those intimate parts of her body. So it's reverse. A uh, male porn star owes the woman. I don't know, because I think the women belong to the man. I think the woman... Yeah, that's inherently where you get called sexist for. Andrew Tate is currently in custody in Romania under suspicion of trafficking women. He's also subject to at least two allegations of rape. Aaron, 45% of men between 16 and 24 have a positive view of this guy. What can we possibly say about that? How depressing is this? Well, for me, the numbers that really stood out, Michael, was actually, you know, the extent to which young people know about him. 
And the fact that he's more widely known than the prime minister and the leader of the opposition. Look, most young people aren't that political. Most people aren't that political. Uh, but the prime minister? I mean, that's really, that's really saying something. And it really shows, I think, the, the importance of particular media, Instagram, YouTube shorts, TikTok, if you want to get to a certain subsection of the population. The thing around who likes him and who's impressed by him, look, I have a few thoughts on this. First of all, young people are strange sometimes, right? Particularly young men. They might have contrarian views on things. They're working life out. I think that applies if somebody's 18, less so if they're 24. So I'd be interested in seeing the data on, say, 18 to 20-year-olds and then 20 to 24-year-olds. I think it's somewhat, you know, it could just be a phase with a young, a young person or a young man. If you're in your mid-20s, I think that's something quite different. Um, and it has to be said that he's, he has an impressive story. And I should say, a lot of the story isn't true, okay? So he's going around saying that he's worth several hundred million pounds. From what we can see in this investigation thus far, that's not remotely true. He says he comes from a working class background and he's dr driving around in a Bugatti Chevron. You know, he lives this jet set lifestyle. He can buy what he wants, do what he wants. He's a four-time uh, world champion kickboxer. Yet he's also really good at chess. He's a very um, competent, fluid, fluid, public speaker, you know, he, so he, he's accomplished all the things our culture says you should be accomplished at as a man. That's really good. He's earning lots of money. He's competent in a bunch of areas. He's good at fighting. He has a fast car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I can see why a young man would say, yeah, that's, that's really impressive. I, I can. Now, maybe some people watching this would disagree, but I think to an extent that's explicable. Of course, then you get the stuff on top of that, which makes all of that immediately irrelevant which is the stuff he has to say about misogyny. And this is really important, Michael. The stuff he's saying, you know, he said that a man has a, a right to a certain cut of a, a woman if she's his partner and she's an OnlyFans. He's describing a pimp, right? He's describing a pimp. And that's not a coincidence because he made his money with a, basically a cam girl factory, first in the UK, then in Romania. And this is something else I find really strange. You know, he talks about being a man morally centered, he's recently converted to Islam, you made your money from selling sex, right? You made your money from selling sex. Do you, do you not see a sort of a strange contradiction here? You talk about being a man, you don't, you don't have, a, and he talks about protecting and being a you know, strong, masculine, patriarchal, heteronormative figure. You don't have a family. You don't have any children. So I think lots of it is performance. Not that he has to, by the way, but it's weird that he's trying to channel these archetypes and yet the reality of his life is something very, very different, right? He's talking about traditional moral values, yet he is basically a pimp. He talks about how a man has to provide for his family, yet he doesn't have one. So I think a lot of this is performance. I think a lot of it is attention-seeking. And I think young people gravitate towards those sometimes who are attention-seeking. And I also think, Michael, this is something else we haven't really talked about, Young people rebel. Young people don't like to accept or adopt the things that they're told. And, and that's often a good thing. There's a great quote, I can't remember who said it. And they said, a society is dead when the young can no longer surprise you. And I think this is surprising, right? And I, I wonder to what extent with regards to the, the, the success really of socially liberal values, this was inevitable in so much as you do have a reactionary backlash where the counterculture is nonsense like this. And I think that's part of it too, Michael. And I don't think that'll be a majority part of the culture. We, we've talked about this before. I do think over the coming years, coming decades, a big minority of men will have actively 
misogynistic, outrageous views on things like um, bodily autonomy, on things like um, sexual assault, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I think that will be, yeah, a backlash, a, a counter-revolution against really big changes in the last 50 years regarding sexual equality. So I think there's a broader sociological explanation. I think there's another sort of explanation here that is, you know, Tate is, for once of a better word, captivating. He's entertaining on some of the social media he produces. He gets people's attention. He's different. He's saying something different. And I think the challenge here, Michael, is to offer young men in particular two things. Firstly, better role models, better forms of entertainment, but also to tell the truth about how this, you know, who this guy actually is. You know, he isn't who he says he is. He's not as wealthy as he says he is. I suspect he doesn't own a lot of these cars, but he does channel the things that our society says are important. And his story of rags to riches is hugely appealing, Michael, to younger men, particularly from poorer backgrounds, who want to make something of themselves and look at the high street, look at the economy, look at society and feel like they're not getting anywhere. That's my concern. I do have actually sort of related to what you say, a couple more clips of Andrew Tate. I mean, I also find them incredibly depressing, but it is important to note that 45% of boys thinking he's good doesn't necessarily mean that these are 45% of boys who are just gagging to see someone say how much they hate women. Um, I think that's, you know, he's slipped that in, which is what's so dangerous about it. But let's look at a couple of these videos. So in this is one where he tells um, the rags to riches story that Aaron was talking about. I recently bought a very expensive car, too expensive. I'm an idiot. I bought, I bought a Bugatti. And when I was at the Bugatti dinner, um, everyone else there was either daddy's money or oil money, right? And, uh, they had no respect for anything. Like they, like to me, it was a massive deal, right? But they, because they'd never ever been poor, they had no respect for it. So it's kind of like you can be a working class man and sit down with a cup of tea at the end of the day and you'll enjoy that cup of tea more than this oil billionaire will enjoy his $5 million car. Because, like, they have no respect for anything. So if you don't respect something, you can't value anything. If you don't value anything, you can't be happy. It's kind of like if you're in a car traveling at 100 miles an hour, it doesn't feel fast, right? But when you're accelerating to 100, it feels fast. That's how life works. It's not about being in a particular place. It's about getting there. That's the only part that's fun. You know, being there is is whatever. So if you're born with it, then I think life can be kind of sad. So, yeah, I'm super happy I was I grew up broken, looting on free school dinner. So that's the rags to riches story. He also gives out advice that sounds like tough love advice. Let's take a look. I think a man should have absolutely no interest in whether he's actually happy or not. If I wake up and I'm unhappy, I will do the exact same things as if I am happy. I will go to the gym the same. I will work the same. How I feel has no impact on how I live my life. I don't think happiness as an index is a healthy view for a man to have on life success. If you're waking up and going, oh, am I happy, am I not? You're looking at life wrong. I think of a man, if you put happiness far, if you move it down the scale, right? And you start looking at, am I, am I successful? Am I competent? You know, am I achieving things? Am I, am I, am I respected? If you start to look at these indicators of your life, you're gonna end up being happier without actually analyzing if you're happy or not. Aaron, I think it's obvious, like the most toxic thing about Andrew Tate is his misogyny. The, the most depressing thing from this polling is sort of the wedge it's putting between men and women. And I think the danger is putting women in the sort of way he talks about them. Mm. I also actually find the lifestyle advice for men also like 
really depressing. Like that, that's to me seems like an absolute recipe for sadness. Sort of saying your happiness doesn't matter. What matters is that you're strong and people respect you and that you try and own a Bugatti. Now, these most of these kids aren't going to own a Bugatti. That's not how capitalism works. There's only very few people who can get a Bugatti. And they're normally people who were born to privilege anyway. It seems to me that one, he's selling people a violent, horrible ideology, which is putting women in danger. It also seems to me that he's setting up quite a lot of young men for misery and failure, essentially. Yep, completely, Michael. Look, there are two positions here, right? If you don't have housing security, you don't have enough money, you don't have access to things you need, you can either pursue the Andrew Tate approach, which is life is a war of all against all, and you can scratch your way to the top and you can knock out a few people on the way and you might you might get there. Or you can have the Navarra Media approach, which is actually we need a shared social transformation society, something resembling a socialist economy where people get access to the things they need, whether it's housing, food, education, transport, healthcare. I think that's a far more sensible approach. And I think that really underpins the importance of articulating a socialist politics en masse to precisely the kinds of people who presently find Andrew Tate's message appealing, alluring, persuasive. Amen. I mean, I think that's a very important sort of idea to end the show on, sort of a call to action as well. To finish up, because we're running out of time, super, super briefly, Aaron, Downstream's coming out on Sunday. I'm on it. What did we talk about? Well, we talk about your workout regime, Michael, and uh, you know how you get a six-pack. No, we don't do that in the slices. We talk about the housing crisis, Michael. Crash Course is your new podcast. It's a really great podcast. You go in on a topic and you try and offer a crash course to the audience. They can learn a great deal very quickly. This first series is on the housing crisis. Michael, I have to say, I was blown away by the quality of journalism. I learned a great deal. And I think people will really enjoy the conversation we had. I think we recorded, you said 90 minutes. It was the best part of two hours. Could have been longer. Don't worry. It's somewhat condensed. I think downstream is, is related to what you're talking about as well, providing sort of alternatives. I think the Gary Stevenson one especially sort of kind of fits into that category. Aaron, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Michael. And thank you everyone for watching this evening. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.